is opening a chance if anyone has anything they want to ask about himself or the practice of meditation. You're welcome to, if you have any questions, you know. Jan was just saying that um, the real way we get beyond our doubts and the questions is through the practice of the teachings. If we practice the teachings, put them into practice, then we'll know for ourselves. Uh, I was just joking that many people, they don't actually ask questions when I offer them the chance they don't ask questions. It's just saying it. Some people they don't ask because they know, so there's no need to ask. Some people they don't know, but they still don't ask. The only way, really, the only way you can uh, get beyond doubt, uncertainty, is through practice, and you already know for yourself inside. When I am trying to meditate and focus on the breath, I find that my mind is too distracted with too many thoughts. Sometimes I retain the thought for thirty seconds, sometimes more, but then, but then again I'm distracted. Is there any way to help me focus on breath only? And then Jen was just explaining that yes, we use um, meditation objects to develop our awareness, our concentration, and the breath is a very, um, it's a universally applicable meditation object, very good for many people um, for the development of mindfulness. But at the same time, if you find your mind is very distracted and wandering off the subject of your meditation, it's not very concentrated, you can also use um, wisdom, you use your intelligence and train your thinking to help give rise to states of concentration as well. Um, so if you're thinking a lot and your, your, your thoughts are very distracted and not very concentrated or focused, why not use your thought in a skillful way? So he suggests you could also do this, you can focus your thoughts on say this body and contemplate the nature of this body, where does it come from, what's it made up of? And this physical body, um, we talk about it being made up of the four elements, the earth, the air, fire and water. And we can contemplate this how since we've been born into this world these four elements have come together we eat food and drink and the body gradually grows up and um, it gets older and then one day it's going to die and just contemplating like this using your thoughts focusing them on this theme of uh, meditation like this is a way of using thought uh, in a skillful way and this will help to calm the mind down Another method to develop your concentration in a very focused way is to count your breaths. Um, when you breathe in, you count one, breathe out, count one, so that's a pair. Breathe in again, you count two, breathe out, count two. Um, but the way you do this is not just count endlessly, you count from one to two pairs and then one, two, three pairs, and then one, two, three, four pairs, one, two, three, five, four, five pairs of breaths. As long as you're aware of your breath going in and out and you haven't lost your counting, you do this, you keep returning to zero and then counting up to five, six, seven, eight, and go all the way up to ten. And by the time you've done that successfully, you've counted ten in-breaths and out-breaths, ten pairs, you should find that your concentration and your awareness is much better and your mind is calmer. And then you just repeat it again, you go back to zero, count one pair of breath in, pair of breath out, 
two, three, and so on. This way you keep reinforcing your awareness until your concentration becomes very, very well established. And then you'll find probably, once that it is well established and you're fairly concentrated, you can drop the counting and you can just follow the feeling of the breath going in and out then. But in the beginning, the numbering, the counting of the breath helps to cut through the tendency to just think a lot. There's many other ways that we can support our meditation practice. For instance, in daily life, we can just learn how to contemplate truth, contemplate the Dhamma, uh, using our thoughts, directing them to truth. And this is, again, what we call using wisdom to develop samadhi, to develop a state of calm and concentration. So, for instance, you can, uh, in your daily life, say you're just walking around, you see trees. You can contemplate how trees, the leaves on the trees, they start off as shoots, and these shoots grow, and they become free, uh, green, beautiful leaves, and then gradually with aging, with the passing of the seasons, those green, lush leaves start to fade, they dry out, they become parched, and then they drop off the tree. Then you can bring that contemplation back to yourself and say, oh, our human life is much the same. We grow up in this world, we are healthy, and then we gradually get older, we start to um, age, and eventually we're going to die. Just like leaves and many other things in this world, we're subject to impermanence. Contemplating like this helps to cut off the natural tendency of the mind to proliferate, worry, and, and be distracted. And if we're doing this in our daily life in any different way we, we manage to contemplate truth like this, it will help bring the, the mind back to the present moment to cut through the mental proliferation and this will support the, the practice of meditation. If we keep applying ourselves like this, learning to contemplate truth in our daily life, it will naturally bring up a sense of inner awareness, uh, understanding and calm. And this is characterized by uh, we'll be less caught up in the mental proliferations that cause us suffering, less concerned about our likes, the things we're attached to in life, and our dislikes in life. The mind will tend to, towards more states of calm, where it's, it's setting aside its normal concerns with liking and disliking. And the more mindfulness and awareness we practice like this, then when we actually come to sit down and meditate, the mind seems much more prepared, mentally prepared, and the meditation will go better. And the signs of the meditation developing going better are that we start to experience at least moments of we call pity and sukha. Pity is like joy or rapture. Sukha is inner contentment, inner happiness. And you can actually experience moments, periods of time when you feel quite content, quite joyful inside. And this is showing you the value of meditation. This is something very important in life. And this is the value of the Buddhist teachings, bringing us to experience these kind of states. And the more we, we practice them, the more these, these states we experience them, and the more we'll really know the essence of the Buddhist teachings, not just from what we've heard, but in our own hearts, we'll actually know the, the kind of happiness, the kind of joy that the Buddha is talking about. When we start to practice and experience the fruits of the practice, the happiness, the joy, then we really will see that how it is our good fortune to have come in contact with the Buddhist teachings, to have faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha.
where we have faith and confidence in these teachings and the Buddha as our teacher, the leading quality or distinguishing quality of the Buddha is that he is the Puru, meaning he is the awakened one or the one who knows. And this is what he taught us to develop this sense of uh, inner awakening, inner knowing. Um, the way this develops is through the practice or the training in sila, morality, samadhi, concentration, and panya, wisdom. These three aspects of the practice that we develop in our daily lives, these are developing this um, puru, the one who knows or the knowing inside our minds. And with this develops the actual quality we call being a human being or our humanness. Um, of course, everyone is born in the world as a human being with a human body, but often their minds are not yet really truly human. The qualities of a human being or the potential of a human being has not really been fully realized yet. It's only through this development in uh, morality, concentration and wisdom that will bring up the full human qualities, full human potential of the mind. And uh, this is, you could say, it's like a, the real human birth is, is when we d develop and train our minds in this way. And this is something that takes place inwardly. It's not just the physical form that's a human, but the mind actually becomes fully human. Once the real human being is being born inside of our minds, uh, with it come the qualities of a human being, the virtues, the, the good wholesome qualities of the human being. Uh, then we'll see the value of practice, the value of study. And although it is important to train in study, to learn things in this world, to train our memories, to remember things, learn things, learn how to use our minds to think and consider different things, we also ultimately have to know how to stop thinking. This is also part of study, part of practice. And because we only experience real peace when we learn how to stop the mind from just its normal um, discursive thinking, randomly thinking about many things. It's only when we can stop this we'll experience peace. So as we train and we practice more deeply, more sincerely, then we start to experience um, the state of uh, the Buddha, or the Buddha within us. Um, that means that this inner knowing, this inner knowing awareness that we're developing uh, is becoming established in our heart through continual, gradual efforts put into the practice training in mindfulness, in virtue, in mindfulness and concentration. And as we train more and more, and this inner Buddha arises in our hearts, in our minds, we'll experience more um, contentment, more rapture, more happiness for this. And this is the, the, the duty, the goal of Buddhist practitioners, is to experience this inner peace. And this inner knowing of the inner Buddha that arises within us uh, allows us also to have the clarity to see the true nature of um, the world around us, to see the true nature of all our experience. That is that all conditioned things are impermanent, they're unsatisfactory and they're ultimately not self, they're not ours to possess, to take ownership of. Uh, when we have this, this clear knowing, clear seeing of the way things are, seeing that things are impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self, and then this is as if the Buddha is arriving within us and we're really getting to the very essence of the teachings. 
So in the beginning of practice, the most important foundation we have to develop is learning how to restrain the unwholesome tendencies of body, speech and mind, how to give them up, abandon them. Uh, just as that uh, famous teaching of the Buddha he gave uh, on Marga Puja uh, explained, Sabha Bhapasa Akaranam, abandoning the unwholesome. Bhapasa, unwholesome dhammas, means unwholesome ways of body, unwholesome actions, unwholesome speech, unwholesome mind states. And uh, the way we refrain from these is to bring up mindfulness, a sense of restraint, learning how to stop uh, our unwholesome thoughts from taking over the mind and leading on to speech and actions, and then turning the mind to contemplate truth to develop the full understanding, the full clarity of truth. Um, when we practice giving up uh, that which is unwholesome, we are also in, at the same time developing that which is wholesome, the opposite, and this is the second part of that verse that Buddha gave, Kusala Supasampada, is developing the good, bringing good to completion. Uh, for instance, all the different good aspects of the practice that we do, say right here today, you're practicing chakra, a sense of renunciation, giving up, coming to the monastery, giving up your time, your energy, your, your material resources to support the Sangha, um, to help build the monastery and support the Sangha. This is all acts of renunciation, acts of uh, giving up, and the more energy we put into giving up in different ways, this will increase our ability to train ourselves. Um, just as many people give up to build this monastery, Bodhiwana Monastery, it takes great effort. So each individual has to put in great effort to give up um, to the practice and develop themselves in good, wholesome ways, successful ways. All aspects of the practice require this effort and this giving up whether you're chanting, you're meditating, you're practicing different acts of uh, generosity, kindness, charity, it all takes an effort to, to give up uh, our more unwholesome motivations, say our selfishness, our laziness, whatever. And so we must um, really aim to complete um, and completely develop the wholesome dhammas of body, speech and mind in the most complete, most um, perfect way we can. The final verse of this famous teaching, Satchita Pariyotapanam, Etan Bhutana Sasanam. Satchita Pariyotapanam means to purify the mind, to bring it to clarity, purity. Um, and this is the teaching of all Buddhas. A Buddha arises in whichever era, ever age, he will always teach this same teaching. Uh, the mind is purified through clearly seeing the true nature of our existence, to see the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness and the lack of self or the, the lack of ownership in all of our experience. Normally, unenlightened, the unenlightened mind is covered over by attachment, places, wrong kinds of thinking that take it to suffering. But as we continue to practice, then it starts to brighten as these places clear away, as the mind is purified through the practice. It brightens, becomes more radiant, more happy. Um, so everything we're doing is moving towards that state of happiness and clarity. The dana we develop um, in our daily lives, the, the generosity, the kindness, um, 
brings up states of happiness um, that you can compare to the to the state of happiness of a deva, say a, a celestial being. As the goodness develops within us, this sense of happiness will arise, and it will keep us far away from the opposite, say the states of suffering that um, once more associated with a state of um, uh, suffering leads a being to feel like they're living in a kind of a living hell. We have happiness and we have virtue um, in our minds and this allows the, the, the level of our minds to raise up and up and up um, from the level of say just an ordinary unenlightened being who doesn't understand the truth of things to the level of a Kalyanachana, so from Patujana to Kalyanachana. Kalyanachana means one who is practicing dana and sila and bhavana, and they're practicing on the path, they have right view and understanding of what is wholesome and unwholesome. Um, and then one who will be thinking of using their time, any free time they had to develop their practice, to develop themselves in a good way. All of this begins from the mind. If we train the mind well, it will grow in good ways. It will experience more inner peace, inner happiness. And this is the aim of the practice. You'll just say this much uh, for, as a formal talk today, but still if anybody does have any questions, we'd be happy to answer your questions now. And thinks you have a lot of faith to drive all the way out here. Most of you drive for a minimum of an hour, maybe an hour and a half, even longer. So, so this is very impressive. Um, in Thailand, people don't tend to drive quite so long to visit the temple, but they have temples much nearer their home. <laughs> Jan just said that um, this is his second visit to Australia. First one was uh, at least six years ago, maybe seven years ago. Uh, he hadn't had the opportunity to come. He was building a, a large hall, a Bajra hall in his monastery, which is now finished, and uh, one other Vihara. And now he is more free. Uh, he's, he goes to India um, nearly every year, uh, and hopefully he'll be able to come abroad more often now to visit us and others. He has about 10 uh, foreign monks living in his monastery. There's about 40 monks there altogether. There's a, um, at least a couple of Australians. We have from here, Venerable Jayadama is living with him as well. And a few other Australians and many other nationalities around the world living with him at the moment. So the, the Western monks aren't disrobing, so they're staying on. So every year, maybe two or three more monks come. So he thinks within a few years, then maybe half of his monastery will be full of foreign monks, Western monks. <laughs> Just saying that um, gradually over the years, he's become more, more well known in the Western uh, Buddhist circles as well as in Thailand. And so what Nanachat, the uh, International Forest Monastery, begun by Ajahn Chah, they send monks to him. Um, the branch monasteries around the world, in Europe, America, send monks to him. Uh, I send monks to him. <laughs> also, he says that because this monastery has now become more well-known, it's more successful, um, monks are seeing that, and so they're interested to go and study with Ajahn Anand. And even Ajahn Mahabur himself, Western is going to ask to ordain with him. Sometimes he'll uh, send them to Ajahn as well. He says, if 
what is uh, what was it like going to India for Tamajan? And he was just saying that um, when you go to India, you know, it's, you're getting a chance to see human suffering very close, close, close up, because obviously it, it's a country that has a lot of um, poor people, people who are in a state of what we say suffering, and particularly the areas where you go if you go on pilgrimage in Bihar state, northern India, it's the poorest state of India. Um, so the people are very poor, the facilities, the uh, environment is pretty tough, and so you get to see that. Um, not only that, there's the caste system in India, which means that just there's a certain inequality in the society that there's uh, the Brahmin caste and so on. They they do have a chance to earn money to do business and earn money, and they become super rich. But then there's other castes who have, have very little opportunity to do that, and they just, however hard they work, they stay very poor and live in great difficulty. Um, and so you can see, perhaps this is why the Buddha chose to become enlightened in India, northern India, because. It's when you see the suffering of life that you want to find a way out of suffering, isn't it? Then you want to seek a spiritual path that will take you out of suffering. And that's uh, so, so obvious in, in India that it's a very suitable place to contemplate the Dhamma and to practice the Dhamma. He's saying, as he went on pilgrimage last time, sometimes you'd see people lying on the side of the road and you couldn't even tell if the person was alive or dead. You just couldn't be sure. And their clothes were all dirty and they're just lying there very stiff, very still. Um, last year, in the, in the winter, they were there. There, there was uh, one place where there was 50 corpses being piled into a, a truck. People would, I guess, die from the cold, you don't know. Um, so this, this kind of experience just makes you think of the suffering of human life and want to find a way out of it. Uh, but of course, there's the suffering of India, but there's also the great joy, the rapture, and the happiness of going to the Buddhist holy sites, seeing them, worshipping at them, bowing, uh, chanting, meditating at those sites. It brings up a lot of joy, and that's the thing also you remember from those kind of trips, is the joy of practicing where the Buddha actually lived and practiced himself. He says, I should arrange a tour to India. Sorry. <laughs> If you've been to India and you come back to Melbourne, you'll feel like you're in heaven. <laughs> Just saying that it's a good place to practice the Brahmavihara Dhammas. When you're in India and you see uh, there are the super rich, you see the poverty all around you though. And you know, sometimes it's, it just brings up a lot of compassion and a lot of um, sadness as well. That sometimes when you're traveling as a tour, you get all the beggars come. Um, they know people, tourists have money, and you've know, seen, say, a young girl, maybe 10 years old, holding a baby, for, maybe for her mother, looking after it, but her trade or her way of getting money is begging, and there's always lots of beggars, so if maybe someone gives some one beggar some money, or just throws some money, and the girl wants to get some money, she'll just throw the baby down to go and get the money, because they're so, you know, that's, they've got to get that money if they can. Uh, and so it naturally brings up a sense of, you know, just seeing sadness at the suffering of life, people, the position people are in. Um, but also it brings up, you have to use wisdom because 
obviously you have metta, you want to help people, poor people, beggars and so on, but you know, how much can you as one person help? Because you see, when you do start, say, giving money or things to the poor people, they'll, they'll crowd all around you. And say, if you have a, most of these tour groups go on a bus, you start giving out money to beggars, then they'll, they'll just surround the bus, you can't move anywhere. And <laughs> they'll just stop the bus, and they'll even come on the bus, and there's always a danger somebody could get trapped under the bus, sometimes they get trapped under the wheels. And, you know, you give money to one person, then a hundred will come. You give money to a hundred people, a thousand will come. And you have to think, well, how much measure have I got? So you also have to have upeka, which is this quality based on contemplating karma and accepting and understanding that everybody is experiencing the fruits of their own karma that they've made. And that sometimes you may be able to help them, but sometimes not. You just have to accept what they're having there to experience their own karma. One year they tried to arrange some giving out of um, charity to, to the poor people and tried to do it in a formal way so for everyone to form a queue. But there's so many people, the ones at the back were scared they weren't going to get their share. And so after about five people giving them some gifts, the rest just charged in, they didn't want to form a queue. Yeah. And this is the way, you know, when you're very poor, you just can't be sure what you're going to get, what, where your next meal's going to come from and all that. So, you really, uh, you don't waste your time, you're not going to form a queue. The, the beggars tend to have their own wisdom and their experience, you know, in, in their trade. So they learn to look and see who's got the most meta and the most sympathetic. And then they also have great patience. Uh, and they'll just stick on to that person once they found the one with the soft spot in their heart. They won't leave them, so they'll be <laughs> around with them all day, which makes it quite difficult. Um, they, for instance, had you know, one trip, he, he told everyone, that don't, don't give to the beggars yet, we'll do it in a more proper way, we'll go to the temple, and where they have various projects where they set up um, education funds, uh, health projects to help the poor people do it in a more formal way. If you give money, you know, yourself privately, then you'll start to get crowded out and you'll find it very difficult. There's one man who sort of still wanted to do it, so he waited until there's no one around, there's just one child, and he gave the child a hundred rupees, which is, you know, a massive amount of money for a beggar in India. But then, of course, these, these children, they have their own rules of behavior, and their rule is they have to tell their friends once they're given money. <laughs> so they told all his friends, and in the end he had to give all the way his possessions to his friends on that trip, because they wouldn't leave him alone for the rest of the trip, he couldn't go anywhere. So, sometimes in these matters you have to learn the, the, what is the, you know, the wise way to deal with it, so they've been doing offerings at the temples and the temples do formal charity work that way they can help with the beggars and the poor people. He's, he's also been to Sri Lanka and went from a trip about 12-13 years ago and travelled up to Sri Pada, a famous mountain which has a Buddhist footprint on top uh, and on the way back down he found in his bag, his monk's shoulder bag, it's full of um, Buddha eggs which had just manifested when on top of the mountain.